0: Hello and welcome to the Eurasian Knot. I'm your host, Sean Gillery. As you know, the Eurasian Knot is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh. And listeners like you who are generous enough to become patrons of the show and give monthly contributions to help us do what we do do some good interviews, do some good stories, make the podcast sound good. So if you would like to become a patron and help us out, please go to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash or to uranot.org and find that Patreon button and become a monthly patron. Every little bit helps. So longtime listeners might remember that every semester I do a spotlight on a Pitt faculty member who's affiliated with Reese, which is where I work. And well, it's that time of year again. And this week's episode features an interview with Anna Kovalova about her work on early Russian film. She's a new visiting professor in Pitt's Slavic department. I hope you enjoyed the interview. I certainly learned a lot, but I also know very little about early cinema, like, for example, 80% of what was made in those times no longer exists for a variety of reasons this is something anna and i talk about and of course the popular appeal of uh, these films um, around the turn of the century in the russian empire so i hope you enjoy it anna kovalova is a visiting assistant professor in slavic languages and literatures at the university of pittsburgh Previously, she was an associate researcher at the European University in St. Petersburg, and she's published widely in Russian and English on the development and popular appeal of early cinema in the Russian Empire. Here's Anna Kovalova. So just to start our conversation, I'd like to have you introduce yourself.
1: My name is Anna. I'm a new visiting professor at the University of Pittsburgh.
0: And and what do you what do you work on? Uh,
1: so I'm going to be at the Department of Slavic Lang- Languages and Literatures, and uh, well, but basically my main area of research interest is early Russian cinema.
0: And and what what got you interested in that? Like why early Russian cinema as opposed to any other period?
1: A very practical and a bit silly reason is that. I've started working on the history of Russian cinema. And, uh, you know, like as an accurate person, I started from the very start and I got stuck. I never got a chance to go any further because I saw that there were so many uninvestigated and interesting things inside the early period. So I just wanted to stay there and work on them.
0: Is is there something? I mean, besides the fact that maybe there hasn't been a lot of work done, there's lots of questions to left to answer. But it, was there something in particular that just caught your attention, like caught your interest?
1: Well, at at, at first, I think uh, the the whole atmosphere of the earliest period seems to be very charming because people were so excited about a new art. Coming, you know, like from nowhere. It's just that because people thought that there would always be like theater, painting, and literature, and music, and nobody knew where music started or when literature started. Like, and so it was fascinating when, when once in a thousand years, like a new art appears. So it it, it was a miracle, and I think. It felt so magical, both for people who worked in the movies and for people for who went in the movies, like for the viewers. So, yeah, and I, I really liked this feeling of creating um, something new and fantastic. So I wanted to know how people felt. So that's why I started investigating history of movie theaters. And that was my first step and then I went forward to history of film production
0: you know I actually this this uh, intersects with with an interest that I've recently developed and that is how people reacted to um, to sound to new sounds now granted I know early cinema is is silent in terms of it but but nonetheless it is this new technology people have never it like you said it's brand new people have this experience. What are some of the things people felt or experienced when they first encountered this new form of entertainment?
1: Well, first of all, I think I'll have to uh, correct you a little bit. So, sure. <laughs> so, all historians of early cinema, like not only Russian cinema but globally, all they do is they're trying to correct two mistakes, like two stereotypes. To Rid of them and and they never succeed, actually. So that silent cinema wasn't silent uh, because we had a lot of sounds, like, you know, uh, music, piano that accompanied film screenings, and also there were so called sound effects. For example, uh, if there was a train on the screen, they would try to imitate like the sounds of the train and they would try to imitate the sound of rain. For example, they will be using peas for, you know, like uh, just when you kind of shake peas, it, it, it makes a sound that is similar to raining. So right. there were all sorts of sounds and and the other the second stereotype is that uh early cinema was black and white it wasn't so all the films were tinted or toned so you probably saw this you know like um bluish or greenish early films so the the reason is uh, why why we imagine it as black and white is that most of the tinted copies didn't survive, so we don't have them we We do sometimes, but mo- most of them survive in black and white because they they were uh putting film in those bowls with chemicals that made them tinted and right. so these copies most of them didn't survive that that's that's why we imagine them but black and white but those people who went to the movies they actually saw tinted movies so they didn't imagine the world of cinema as something black and white it, it was full of colors and full of sounds and that's why even more fascinating uh, area to be in
0: ah, well I, I i completely stand corrected so so how did people like react to this then
1: well, there were all sorts of reactions. Of course, uh, as always when something new comes up, there are always people who are not happy about it. And uh, for example, many people from the theater, they didn't like the popularity of the movies because they saw that they thought that maybe cinema would destroy theater at some point and they thought that Movies were not intelligent, they were silly and they were preventing people from, you know, like getting something from the theater or from literature, from proper arts. So, but most people, of course, they they were excited and actually they, I think they never were afraid of the theater. Another stereotype, another myth is that people were afraid of, uh, you know, like of this coming train. Uh, and th- so they, they were screaming or, you know, like leaving was the, movie theaters. So now film historians, they, they think that it's just a myth. So actually it, it didn't happen that way. So they, they, they liked the idea at, at the very start. And also um, maybe it's also important that um, actually children were basically allowed to the movies. And uh, that, that's why there was a whole generation of people like, you know, who were born at the turn of the century who were able to get this experience from the very start because they were not allowed in theaters, but they were allowed in, in, in cinemas. And ma- many of them uh, became those, uh, you know, like famous splendid film directors like Walt Disney for example he was inspired by these early silent movies and then he recreated many of them on on his in his own movies like the snow white is basically it it it's very much like the old snow white who no one knows today but we can see that they are very similar and also since children were allowed then women were also had this freedom to go to a movie theater whenever they wanted, whenever they had, you know, like a little bit of cash, because you can always bring your child with you, uh, whether you are a mother or a grandmother or you are a nanny. So it was the whole new culture of movie going for women and children. I like that this idea too.
0: So was it affordable then? Even though this was a kind of new technology, was it affordable to a, a large segment of the population?
1: Yeah, that's another fascinating thing about that, is that there were all sorts of prices for tickets, and that's why there were all sorts of people coming into the same movie theater. And people even said that there is no other place in our city where all these people could meet, because they were very expensive tickets uh, and uh, people from nobility or very rich people, they would buy these tickets and sit fashionably. And uh, But they were very cheap tickets and at the same movie theater. So that's why, you know, like... Um, a maid could be at the same movie theater with people who would be much richer than her mistress, for example. And wow. he, and there could be a minister of enlightenment and a prostitute at, at the same, you know, like at the same space, watching the same movie, getting the same experience. So it was a, uh, a triumph of democracy.
0: So would you consider this... Um because you know historians talk a lot about how this is the age of the development of mass media right newspapers you know pulp literature uh lower class forms of theater but as you said here you get an interesting class mix whereas those other forms of entertainment tend to target various classes so would you say that the, this the film film the development of film is really the first kind of real mass Entertainment medium.
1: Well, that, that that's an interesting question. I I never I never thought about it in that way. Is it really the first? Well, probably the very first uh, experience of such kind is uh, press cinema. You know those magic lantern performances, which were also very affordable and. Uh, so the target audience was also diverse, really diverse but um, and that's why sometimes pre-cinema is considered to be like the beginnings of cinema. So yeah, but but many people do not agree they think that it's a, it's another area like we shouldn't mix these two things. But I think that the influence of cinema, was obviously stronger than uh, that of magic lantern shows
0: well let, let's step back and talk a bit about the development of, of early Russian cinema. First off, I'm curious uh, what are the, what's the time frame for early Russian cinema?
1: So actually it's really difficult to to say because m- all many scholars think one way, and some scholars think the other way. So, the easiest thing is to say that um, at the end of the early, early Russian cinema is 1917, because that's the year of the October Revolution. And so, some people think that, that that's the end of early Russian cinema. But, you know, as things progress, the borderline for early Russian or not, you know, like, it changes. So, and some, some people even think, you know, really think that uh, the end of early cinema is World War II. Not yeah. only for Russian cinema, but world. Because it's natural, because now we are on the, in the 21st century. And that's why, you know, like early, that means something that was a while ago. And this was a while ago. So why, why don't we call it early? So, yeah. Well, but basically, either 1917 or... Uh, 1919, when private studios were disappeared from the empire, because uh, basically after the revolution, the tendency for the new government, for the Bolshevik government, was to capture all the film production. But for some time there were still private studios, um, there, so they they were not. Uh, it wasn't easy to you know, like to just to destroy them all at one at one time. So till nineteen nineteen they still existed. And so sometimes we say that nineteen nineteen is the you know like is the is the end. And the other point of view is nineteen twenty
0: one. So it's all around the kind of revolutionary period. And what about beginning?
1: Um so the beginning the beginning is there are two ways of interpreting that. So the first films were shown in Russia in 1896, like in the rest of Europe, I think. And at the same time, the first films were made because we had this coronation. The Tsar Nicholas II was crowned in 1896. And of course, people came to film it. Uh, But the first feature films appeared quite late, so it was in 1907 when they made, yeah, they were ha- far behind America and Europe. And they they were just watching imported films for a decade or so. It, even when they started making movies for a long time, I think, till... Uh, Till the World War One started, most of the distribution was controlled by foreign films, so they were basically watching European and American films.
0: Yeah, from my understanding, that was the case all the way up into the 30s. Most of the most of the films were imported because the the Soviet film industry—I mean, the film industry collapsed—and then they took them a long time to rebuild it.
1: Well, I I would disagree with that. I think in in the 20s, they already had maybe... Like in in mid-20s, they would already establish a rather competitive film production. And also there was a period after mid and late 10s, it would also be a very strong and productive filmmaking in Russia. So you are asking about early Russian cinema, and I think we will... Stick to this uh, term because at at this point we do not have a better one. But um, I think I should emphasize that this Russian cinema was not only Russian. So people of very different backgrounds were working in this field. Like for example. Elizabeth Thiemann, the first female film director, she was German and um, many people were Jewish and uh, it's not that they were Jewish in terms of nationality or their religion, it's just that there, there was also a, a whole genre, a whole universe of Jewish films, uh, films about Jewish shadows and yeah. about Jewish people. So yeah, and we also consider it a part of russian cinema but it is something different and also some people were made in ukraine of course and some people some films were made in poland which was also a part of the russian empire at this point so it's a whole diverse phenomenon and i think we will have the chance to to find a proper name for it at some point
0: so talk about some of the issues that th- this new form, this new medium develops in Russia to become what we would think of as, you know, what we call cinema or even a film industry or beginnings of one, uh, in the early part of the, the 20th century. So once, you know, you, you kind of dated around 1907, uh, what are some of the things that this industry is trying to develop?
1: Well, I think that sadly, or maybe it's a good thing, is that they were more focused on making money. They didn't see creation of the imperial cinema as their challenge or as their aim. And I think it's good that at first the government, the czar or people who were around around him, they were not interested in the new medium at all. So... They just thought that it's something foolish or something that would, they they just didn't think about it probably. And so that's why they didn't try to use it as a propaganda, as as something that would give an image of the great empire uh, that the Soviet government did that a lot. But before the revolution, it was just a business, in the first place. And they were trying to figure out what would in what would be interesting for the viewers, uh, what would sell. And that's why they created this funny um, genres that were popular at that time.
0: Like what, for example?
1: Uh, like a very like a, the famous uh, Russian melodrama a melodrama with a so-called Russian ending because they thought that Russian people would only like movies with tragic endings. So it's just that someone should die, a protagonist should die or commit suicide and or kill someone. And the best thing is that someone dies and someone commits suicide and someone commits a murder and all, all these things should be uh, together. Yes. And that, that would be an ideal ending. Um, so, with lots of blood and tears and uh, like dead bodies all around. And uh, it was so popular that even in Europe, they would very often make movies with two endings. So, they would make a happy ending for the distribution copy for Europe and America. And they would make a copy with a tragic ending, especially for Russia.
0: Wow. That's so stereotypically Russian.
1: <laughs> no, European people would do that.
0: <laughs> no, I know. Yeah. But the fact that there's a tragic ending <laughs> is so stereotypically.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's, that's right. I know what I mean. Yeah. What yeah. do you mean? Yes.
0: <laughs> but, but so I have to ask, though, you know, given because I'm, I'm thinking of 1907, right, that the country's complete chaos. There was a revolution um, there's political violence every you know all over the cities. and we're mostly talking about the cinemas in cities, big cities and and there's moral panics. There's a suicide moral panic. there's moral panics about young people. there's all sorts of concern about the kind of morality of of the populations and things like this. So was there some sort of kind of moralist concern about these films having these like suicidal endings or violent endings on, and, and how it would impact the viewer?
1: I think they didn't mix those things together too much. So they, they, we could find some political concerns in Pravda, for example. So the truth, it, or Pravda, it, it, it was the major newspaper of the Bolshevik party which was banned. Uh, you know like before the revolution and after the revolution it, it, became, it became like basically the only newspaper that people had so in, in Pravda in the Bolshevik Pravda they would say that um, the movies do not uh, reveal real problems, real social problems and it's bad that uh, most movies are about rich people you know like loving or not loving each other, hating or not hating each other, killing or not killing each other. And the problems of working people, they are just ignored by the screen. And uh, actually it, it was true because censorship wasn't too rough before the revolution, but they did try to, uh, to ban those films about working people and, and about strikes. So that they saw as a threat.
0: I have to say I'm surprised because you you do have these panics about, say, jazz music, for example, or the kind of popular music of the late 19th and early 20th century. Um, and, and the fact that there isn't one about film, maybe, maybe film is still flying under the cultural radar from the authorities or these kind of moralist writers. Um, but I, I am a bit surprised there wasn't a kind of a panic about – how this would affect people's moral constitution or something.
1: No, they, they, they would criticize other things though. They would criticize films of so-called Paris genre. This is like a pornography and, and they would think that this can, you know, like distract people. And also um, they would think that movies would provoke crimes because if you watch, if you see this very fa- very popular actually it was something like a TV show, The Vampires. It was a very popular series, a French one. And it was not about the vampires that suck blood, uh, and the, uh, about the, the gang of thieves or, and murders, murderers, um, mysterious ones. And uh, so they would think that people watch them and then go and do the same things. So the idea of people just dying at the end of the film didn't seem threatening, so for some reason. Right,
0: extent, but certainly the, the kind of social ills that it, it portrayed was seen as threatening.
1: Yeah, but like more direct things.
0: Like, you know, your usual kind of sex and violence and yeah. how it's going to influence yeah, people's behavior, like right? That's
1: right, yeah, sex and violence. And also they didn't like when something... Church-related would appear at at the screen. Religious things that, it, that that could also be troubling. For example, they didn't allow jesus christ to appear on the on the screen so that this is our band superstar because we could see jesus christ in so many things produced in europe and in america but when these movies would come to russia they would try and cut off all the images of jesus christ
0: so i know you you work on on the role of women in this early industry Uh, tell me a bit about the place of women and and what kind of opportunities film provided for them
1: yeah, well, you you know, I think everybody knows that when something new comes up, it's easier to squeeze in this field than to, to be in the field where everything is already established. Uh, that's why women rushed into this um, industry, into this new uh, whole world of opportunities uh, right from the very start. And um, they were uh very much in demand in editing. So actually most editors were women. And uh, probably they thought that this job demands accuracy and that's why a woman can do it, you know, like no, no worse than a man. <laughs> uh, but very soon it, it became clear that an editor is someone who contributes. To the film quality, so some of the female editors who started before the revolution became world recognized film directors, like Elizaveta Svilova, for example. She started like a basic editor, and of course, women were actresses. That's uh, that's something obvious. And another field where women's labor was very much appreciated is screenwriting. So they, they thought that women don't have much to do at home. Why don't they write a script? Anyone can do it. So that that's why they would take a screenplay written by a woman as easy as they would take a script written by a man.
0: I guess if you think it through, it, it doesn't sound so unexpected. But considering how You know, when we the cinema that we know, which is mid 20th century on women are squeezed out of those kind of production positions, you know, screenwriting, you know, certainly probably editing and other things. They're still actresses, of course. But in terms of the creation of films, women aren't part of it. Uh, They have to fight uh, to get to get opportunities there, and it's it, I guess it's a testament to how seriously men are taking film in the early period.
1: Yeah, that's true. I think, I think today it's probably easier than it was like twenty years ago, uh, but certainly there at some points it became much harder for women to to be in production. So it was. A shared world, I think, in the earliest period, then it was more captured by men and then m- women became to you know like to come back to film production something like that.
0: Tell me about uh, Elizabeth Feynman
1: yeah she is a wonderful lady I think she was the first credited film director in Russia and a fascinating woman she was a baroness. And she also was an actress and she she was a co-director of the film about Leo Tolstoy. So she was a director and she played his daughter and it was a very uh, scandalous film and actually it survived so everyone can watch it. If you are interested, you can see uh, in in this film. And uh, she was a very influential lady. She was the wife of a prominent Russian producer who created the famous Russian Golden Series. It was a studio, very famous at that time. And so everyone who is interested in that knows it. And uh, today some historians think that maybe her contribution to this film studio was no less than her husband's. So they worked together and uh, everyone knew that she was a great force. And uh, the the funny thing is that for many years, film historians thought that she died in 1926. So quite, quite early, quite uh, soon after the revolution. But uh, thanks to the fact that some of her family moved to the States, now we know that she died in the 70s. So really, yes. <laughs> that's that's I, I bet. That's true. And uh, so Peter Bagrov, another historian of Russian cinema, and I, we found uh, her daughter-in-law. So she still lives here in Ohio. So, and we were able, I mean, the daughter-in-law of Elizabeth Thiemann. So she shared some photos and uh, correspondence with her and so that's why we we were able to reconstruct the biography of the first Russian hmm. female. Screen, did she uh, did there. she
0: immigrate to the United States?
1: Uh, no, she didn't immigrate. She she lived in Italy, but her hus- her son, did. So.
0: Oh, I see. Yeah. and why was it assumed that she died in 1926?
1: Uh, because her mother died in 1926 and there were some, re- some reports about her death and about the death of the woman of the same last name who, con- who were in films, who made films. And actually her mother was also involved in filmmaking. So that's another woman who contributed to, like, to early Russian cinema. And that- that's why it was mixed up.
0: This is a 50 years. Did she just fade into the obscurity? Did she not work in film after immigration, after she left Russia? Or I'm baffled by the fact that she lived another 50 years and nobody knew until recently. What was she doing?
1: Yeah, that I I also felt this way. I, I I would never think that it could be that way. But in the nineteen twenties she did try to contact film people in Europe and uh to find a way for her to to work and to find some you know, like either employment or a way to start her own new film business, but she didn't succeed, sadly. And so yes, she was just living in poverty. And that's very sad. We we wrote an article about about her. It is now published, free access, on on the Women Film Pioneers database. And the, there are some extracts from her letters to her son. Like she's writing that she wanted to commit suicide. She wanted to howl like an abandoned dog. And the sad thing is that In this family, they even didn't know very well about her work in Russian cinema. They would just think that she was a bit like a toxic, abusive mother who doesn't want to do anything and always complains and always expects people to work for her. They thought that that she didn't work a day in her life. So when we told the story, you know, like to the daughter-in-law and and her children, they were also amazed and they, they said we understand her better now. <laughs> Thank you.
0: That's really incredible how the family themselves had no clue what her, you know, what she did and what she contributed to. It's it's really it's really striking how much you you have to recover of her life. It just fallen into obscurity. Um what is your favorite film from the period and why?
1: Well, there, there was a very interesting film to my mind called The Woman of Tomorrow. And uh, it it was created by the writer Alexander Woznisjansky, who was a prominent screenwriter at the time. And it was a real feminist film because it was about a strong woman doctor. And actually in this film, everything is quite the opposite to what we would find in a typical melodrama. So there is no Russian ending. So... Nobody dies. The plot is that we have this strong woman doctor and we have her husband who is, of course, that's a typical conflict. So he's not happy about having his wife too much focused on her career. So, um, and at some point he finds another woman and so she gets pregnant. And when her delivery comes, it's really bad, you know, uh, so she is going to die, and the doctors don't know what to do. And so now they think about inviting this famous woman doctor to help her. And so the woman doctor comes to help her husband's mistress to yeah. go through her delivery. And when she realizes who is her, then she, of course, she's stuck, but she decides to be a doctor mm-hmm. and to save her and to do her best. And then, even when her husband comes, She thinks that this woman needs his support. So she asks him to be with her so that he could help her to survive and to, you know, like to deliver all right. And so she decides, although the husband, of course, he wants to stay with his wife, but she wants him to be with this other woman and then he does commit suicide so we have this russian ending but it's not the end so the end Mm -hmm. is that when she knows that the husband killed himself she decides to start a new family with his mistress Uh, i mean not sexually but she decides to raise his child with this woman and so they start this very modern lifestyle, so Aww. two women and a child, and, and that's the end of the film. So there is something tragic about it, of course, but it's... it's. But
0: liberating as well. <laughs> yeah,
1: but liberating and and a positive outcome, we, we can see that. So that was a very unusual production, and luckily it survived, because yes. about 85% of early Russian film production is lost. So... We Basically, we would expect it to be lost, but it survived, and everyone can watch it.
0: The high percentage of films that are lost, is that just because of lack of preservation, or is there a reason, like a a main reason?
1: Well, it's it's not only the case for Russian cinema. Uh, So it's... European and American cinema has also not survived very well because people... They did think about film preservation, but it, it took them decades to figure out how to preserve films and to find funds for it because it's it's an expensive thing. And at that point, people think that we should make a film, we should distribute it, we should get money, and then we should just get rid of those old prints because they just take take space and they don't give us any anything. And of course, in terms of Russia, it, it's even worse because... Because of revolution, everything was so chaotic and people were not thinking about films, of course. They were thinking about, you know, like saving diamonds and their own lives. So, yeah, films were not their priority.
0: Going back to this very modern theme and, and some, in some in ways cutting edge theme of this Woman of Tomorrow film. You know, this is a period of a lot of in the, in the Russian artistic literary world, right? This is the Silver Age this is the time of experimentation. You have a bunch of new modernist forms, uh, both in art and in literature, poetry, et cetera. How does film, how would you fit film in that silver age moment? Do you, does it belong there or is it something that's separate?
1: I think, I think it, it does belong. And uh, in, in the silver age, there were two main directions uh symbolism or we could also call call it modernism and there was also realism that was inherited by this nineteenth century tradition of, of Russian literature like Tolstoy and Dostoevsky. So we did have this realistic uh part of the Silver Age. And I think the Woman of Tomorrow and things like and films like that, movies like that uh, they belong to the um, realistic tradition, which comes back to which goes back to Tolstoy and Dostoevsky. But there was also a modernist tradition, and uh, cinema lovers, film lovers know films by Evgeny Bauer, who is considered to be the best Russian film director, and uh, his films are more, you know, like. Um, they are more mysterious, fantastic, and artistically created. So each frame is like a piece of art. So he he, he thought a lot about presenting his films in a beautiful way. So he would decorate everything. He would uh, pay so much attention to the light and to how it all looked. So for him, cinema was all about the image, not about telling a story.
0: And finally, most people and here I can use myself as an example, like the early part of cinema is just not something we know, understand. You know, we, we think of cinema as a very mid to late 20th century thing, right? All the movies we know, and, and I'm sure a lot of it has to do with the fact that a lot of it just wasn't preserved. But what would you like? what would you like listeners or readers to take from your work and what you've said so far about early Russian cinema? What are some of the big takeaways you'd like people to, to consider?
1: That's the, that's, the, that's the hardest question. I think that it's, it's difficult to find, you know, like one particular answer, but w- while, you ex- while you explore this, while you investigate this or while you read about all this, you can find some fascinating small outcomes and you never know w- when are you going to find them. Uh, for example, uh, many of us know this wonderful film. Actually, it's one of my favorites, uh, Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo. And uh, so it's an adaptation of a European novel which was popular at the turn of the century. And Evgeny Bauer made another adaptation of it. Uh, So, yeah, it's fascinating to compare these different versions. And actually, I think they, they have more in common than we would think. And this comparison can give us, I think, some productive thoughts about how would we compare American approach with the Russian approach, approach of the 60s to approach of the beginning of the century. And um, also, in terms of feminism, there was a wonderful, um, not a wonderful, but a curious female screenwriter called Ekaterina Vistovkina, and she created the first Cinderella adaptation in Russia. And uh, curiously enough, this adaptation was feminist. It's, it's a no feminist story, but the adaptation was feminist because her point, I think, was to present this story As a story that no young woman would want to have for herself so and she had this tragic ending and uh so what she was going to say her message was if you are going to be a Cinderella you are gonna you're going to die you will not survive so you, get, you, you stay away from this. So this story is not for, you know, like it's not for a young woman of our time. And maybe a similar um, approach we can find in the American classic film, The Shoes by Lois Weber, because The Shoes is also, it, it is also all about Cinderella. And so you shouldn't be obsessed with shoes, like, you know. Because that, that, that that's what would happen to you. And both these films were made in 1916. And I'm sure that these two women, like one from Russia and the other one from America, they didn't uh, correspond with each other. They they didn't they didn't have a chance to discuss their work together. They, there were no film festivals or things like that. But still, they had this similar ideas. And I think uh, cinema really. Kind of united people and nations and also it was democratic as we were talking at, at the start of our conversation and i think if if we reflect on this we can find many productive thoughts that would affect our lives today
0: that was anna Kovalova. she's a visiting assistant professor in slavic languages and literatures at the university of pittsburgh Previously, she was an associate researcher at the European University in St. Petersburg, and she has published widely in Russian and English on the development and popular appeal of early cinema in the Russian Empire. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is The Eurasian Knot. As you know, it's sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh, and listeners who are generous enough to help us out and become patrons. I can't encourage you enough to consider becoming a patron to help us out. Uh, we could use the money to help build our Eurasian Knot empire here. So please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash And if you're unable to become a patron, you can still help us out by sharing this podcast on social media and telling your friends, family, and whoever else who might be interested to listen and follow us on your favorite podcasting app. So please consider doing that as well. Well, that's it for this week. Until next time, bye.